section thirty eight of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty six ebb and flow part one one cannot study english politics even in the most superficial way without being struck by the singular regularity with which they are governed by the law of action and reaction the succession of ebb and flow in the tides is not more regular and more certain a season of political energy is sure to come after a season of political apathy after the sleeping comes the waking after the day of work the night of repose a liberal spirit is abroad and active it carries all before it for a while it pushes great reforms through it projects others still greater suddenly a pause comes and a whisper is heard that we have had too much of reform and the whisper grows into a loud remonstrance and the remonstrance into what seems to be an almost universal declaration then sets in a period of reaction during which reform is denounced as if it were a treason and shuddered at as though it were a pestilence for a season people make themselves comfortable and say to each other that england has attained political perfection that only fools and traitors would ask her to venture on any further change and that we are all going now to have a contented rest just as this condition of things seems to have become a settled habit and state of existence the new reaction begins and before men can well note the change the country is in the fervour of a reform fit again it is so in our foreign policy we seem to have settled down to a washingtonian principle of absolute isolation from the concerns and complications of foreign countries until suddenly we become aware of a rising sea of reaction and almost in a moment we are in the thick of a policy which involves itself in the affairs of every state from finland to sicily and from japan to the caspian sea it is the same with our colonies we are just on the eve of a blunt and cool dismissal of them from all dependence on us when suddenly we find that they are the strength of our limbs and the light of our eyes and that to live without them would be only death and life and for another season the patriotism of public men consists in professions of unalterable attachment to the colonies it is so with regard to warlike purpose and peaceful purpose with regard to armaments fortifications law reform everything an ordinary observer ought to be able almost always to forecast the weather of the coming season in english politics when action has run its course pretty nearly reaction is sure and it ought not to be very difficult to foresee when the one has had its season and the other is to succeed the explanation of this phenomenon is not to be found in the fact that the people of these countries are as mr carlyle says mostly fools they do not all thus change their opinions in sudden mechanical springs of alternation the explanation is not to be sought in any change of national opinion at all but rather in a change in the ascendancy between two tolerably well-balanced parties in politics and thought the people of these countries or perhaps it should be said of england especially are born into liberalism and conservatism 
in ireland and in scotland the condition of things is modified by other facts and the same general rule will hardly apply but in england this is roughly speaking the law of life men as a rule remain in the political condition we can hardly speak of the political convictions to which they were born but the majority give themselves little trouble about the matter if there is a great stir made by those just above them in politics and to whom they look up they will take some interest and will exhibit it in any desirable way but they do not move of themselves and when their leaders appear to acquiesce in anything for a season they withdraw their attention altogether many a man is hardly conscious of whether he is liberal or conservative until he gets into a crowd somewhere and hears his neighbours shouting then he shouts with those whom he knows to be of the opinions he is understood to hold and he shouts himself into political conviction this is the condition of the majority on both sides it takes immense trouble on the part of the leaders to rouse the mass of their followers into a condition of genuine activity the majority are like some of the heavy-winged insects who hardly ever use their wings and who when for some reason they are anxious to hoist themselves into the air may be seen of a summer twilight making their preparations so long and slowly that a passing observer would never suppose they meant any such unwonted movement as a flight the political leaders and the followers immediately within hearing of their voices have for the most part the direction of affairs in their hands these and the newspapers the leaders the house of commons and the act of local men in cities and boroughs these and the newspapers make up what we commonly understand to be public opinion the change in public opinion or what seems to be such is when one set succeeds for a time in getting predominance over the other the predominance is usually transferred when one set has done or said all it is quite prepared to do or say for the moment then the other having lost patience or gained courage rushes in and gets his turn it is like a contest in some burlesque eclogue in which each singer has his chance only when the rival is out of breath and can strike in and keep singing until he too feels his lungs fail him and has to give way the liberals are in power and they carry some measures by the strength of their parliamentary majority the moment comes when they go further than the patience of their opponents will bear or when they have nothing more to suggest at the moment in either case the managers of the opposition rouse themselves and they say we cannot endure any more of this or they ask each other why they have endured so much they stir up their whole party with all the energy they can muster and at last after tremendous effort they get their shard-borne beetle hoisted for his drowsy flight the others have sunk into comparative languor they have done what they wanted to do they have according to the french phrase exhausted their mandate and there is nothing by which they can call the whole strength of their party into action they do not any longer see their way as well as their opponents do they are not so angry or so resolute perhaps they think they have gone a little too far the conservative newspapers are all astir and aflame the conservative passion is roused the conservative lungs are fresh and strong their rivals are out of breath in a word 
the conservatives get what american politicians call the floor and this is conservative reaction all the time it is probable that not one man in every ten thousand of the population has really changed his opinion the conservatives hold their place for a certain time until their opponents have recovered their energies and have lost their patience until their passion to attack is more thorough and genuine than the power of the men in possession to resist then the liberal beetle has got upon his wings and liberalism has its time again during all these changes however the liberal movement is necessarily gaining ground reaction in english politics never now goes the length of undoing what has been done it only interposes a delay and a warning against moving too far and too fast in the same direction therefore after each flux and reflux it is a matter of practical necessity that the cause which means movement of some kind must be found to have gained upon the cause which would prefer to stand still it is almost needless to say that the liberal party have not always been the actual means of carrying a liberal movement all great conservative leaders have recognized in good time the necessity of accepting some principle of reform in a practical country like england the conservatives could not maintain a party of any kind if it were absolutely certain that their mission was to oppose every reform and the mission of the liberals to promote it as a principle the business of liberalism is to cry forwards that of conservatism to cry back the action and reaction of which we speak is that of liberalism and conservatism not of the leaders of liberal and tory administrations the movement of reaction against reform in domestic policy was in full force during the earlier years of lord palmerston's government in home politics and where finance and commercial legislation were not concerned palmerston was a conservative minister he was probably on the whole more highly esteemed among the rank and file of the opposition in the house of commons than by the rank and file on his own side not a few of the conservative country gentlemen would in their hearts have been glad if he could have remained prime minister for ever his thoroughly english ways appealed directly to their sympathies his instincts went with theirs they liked his courage and his animal spirits he was always ready to fling cheery defiance in the face of any foreign foe just as they had been taught to believe that their grandfathers used to fling defiance in the face of bonaparte in france he was a faithful member of the church of england but his certainly was not an austere protestantism and he allowed religion to come no further into the affairs of ordinary life than suited a country gentleman's idea of the fitness of things there were among tory country gentlemen also a certain doubt or dread as to the manner in which eccentric and exoteric genius might manage the affairs of england when the conservatives came to have a government of their own and when lord derby could no longer take command these therefore all liked palmerston and helped by their favour to swell the sails of his popularity many of those who voted with their characteristic fidelity to party for mr disraeli's resolution of censure were glad in their hearts that lord palmerston came safely out of the difficulty but as the years went on there were manifest signs of the coming and inevitable reaction one of the most striking of these indications was found in the position taken by mr gladstone for some time 
mr gladstone had been more and more distinctly identifying himself with the opinions of the advanced liberals the advanced liberals themselves were of two sections or fractions working together almost always but very distinct in complexion and it was mr gladstone's fortune to be drawn by his sympathies to both alike he was of course drawn toward the manchester school by his economic views by his agreement with them on all subjects relating to finance and to freedom of commerce but the manchester liberals were for non-intervention in foreign politics and they carried this into their sympathies as well as into their principles they had never shown much interest in the struggles of other nations for political liberty they did not seem to think it was the business of englishmen to make demonstrations about italians or poles or french republicans the other section of the advanced liberals were sometimes even flightily eager in their sympathies with the liberal movements of the continent mr gladstone was in communion with the movements of foreign liberals as he was with those of english free traders and economists he was therefore qualified to stand between both sections of the advanced liberals of england and give one hand to each during the debates on italian questions of eighteen sixty and sixty one he had identified himself with the cause of italian unity and independence in the year eighteen sixty four garibaldi came on a visit to england and was received in london with an outburst of enthusiasm the like whereof had not been seen since Kossuth first passed down cheapside and which perhaps was not seen even then it was curious to notice how men of opposing parties were gradually swept or sucked into this whirlpool of enthusiasm and how aristocracy and fashion which had always held aloof from Kossuth, soon crowded round garibaldi at first the leading men of nearly all parties held aloof except mr gladstone he was among the very first and most cordial in his welcome to garibaldi then the liberal leaders in general thought they had better consult for their popularity by taking garibaldi up a lady of high rank and great political influence frankly expressed her opinion that garibaldi was nothing more than a respectable brigand but she joined in doing public honour to him nevertheless acknowledging that it would be inconvenient for her husband to keep aloof and risk his popularity then the conservative leaders too began to think it would never do for them to hold back when the prospect of a general election was so closely overshadowing them and they plunged into the garibaldi welcome men of the class of lord palmerston cared nothing for garibaldi men like lord derby disliked and despised him but the crowd ran after him and the leaders on both sides after having looked on for a moment with contempt and another moment with amazement fairly pulled off their hats and ran with the crowd shouting and hallooing like the rest the peerage then rushed at garibaldi he was beset by dukes mobbed by countesses he could not by any possibility have so divided his day as to find time for accepting half the invitations of the noble and new friends who fought and scrambled for him it was a perpetual trouble to his secretaries and his private friends to decide between the rival claims of a prince of the blood and a prime minister an archbishop and a duchess the lord chancellor and the leader of the opposition the tories positively outdid the liberals in the competition the crowd in the streets were perfectly sincere 
some acclaiming garibaldi because they had a vague knowledge that he had done brave deeds somewhere and represented a cause others perhaps the majority because they assumed that he was somehow opposed to the pope the leaders of society were for the most part not sincere three out of every four of them had always previously spoken of garibaldi when they spoke of him at all as a mere buccaneer and filibuster the whole thing ended in a quarrel between the aristocracy and the democracy and garibaldi was got back to his island somehow had he ever returned to england he would probably have found himself unembarrassed by the attentions of the windsor uniform and the order of the garter the whole episode was not one to fill the soul of an unconcerned spectator with great respect for the manner in which crowds and leaders sometimes act in england mr gladstone was one of the few among the leaders who were undoubtedly sincere and the course he took made him a great favourite with the advanced radicals mr gladstone had given other indications of a distinct tendency to pass over altogether from conservatism and even from peelism into the ranks of the radical reformers on may eleventh eighteen sixty four mr baines brought on a motion in the house of commons for the reduction of the borough franchise from ten pounds rental to six pounds during the debate that followed mr gladstone made a remarkable declaration he contended that the burden of proof rested upon those who would exclude forty-nine fiftieths of the working classes from the franchise it is for them to show the unworthiness the incapacity and the misconduct of the working class i say he repeated that every man who is not presumably incapacitated by some consideration of personal unfitness or political danger is morally entitled to come within the pale of the constitution the bill was rejected as everyone knew it would be a franchise bill introduced by a private member on a wednesday is not supposed to have much prospect of success but the speech of mr gladstone gave an importance to the debate and to the occasion which it would not be easy to overrate the position taken up by all conservative minds no matter to which side of politics their owners belonged had been that the claim must be made out for those seeking an extension of the suffrage in their favour that they must show imperative public need immense and clear national and political advantage to justify the concession that the mere fact of their desire and fitness for the franchise ought not to count for anything in the consideration mr gladstone's way of looking at the question created enthusiasm on the one side consternation and anger on the other this was the principle of rousseau's social contract many voices exclaimed the principle of the rights of man the red republic the social and democratic revolution anything everything that is subversive and anarchical early in the following session there was a motion introduced by mr dillwyn a staunch and persevering reformer declaring that the position of the irish state church was unsatisfactory and called for the early attention of her majesty's government mr gladstone spoke on the motion and drew a contrast between the state church of england and that of ireland pointing out that the irish church ministered only to the religious wants of one-eighth or one-ninth of the community amid which it was established 
in reply to a letter of remonstrance mr gladstone explained not long after that he had not recommended any particular action as a consequence of mr dillwyn's resolution regarding the question as yet remote and apparently out of all bearing on the practical politics of the day it was evident however that his mind would be found to be made up at any time when the question should become practical and it was highly probable that his own speech had greatly hastened the coming of that time the eyes of all radical reformers therefore turned to mr gladstone as the future minister of reform in church and state he became from the same moment an object of distrust and something approaching to detestation in the eyes of all steady-going conservatives end of section thirty eight